0: into Strategic Air Command, also known as SAC. Wow. Think of the U.S. military. Let me try to adjust this microphone here without touching Oh, I did touch it. Okay. The U.S. military, I've been thinking about it as like the, um, a butterfly, okay? Think about that, those big jets as a herd of butterflies. And when that wing tips, watch out, world. That song you just heard, let me get to that and not be totally scattered today, is called Taps. It's a bugle call. It's heard during flag ceremonies and at military funerals performed by the U.S. Armed Forces. The official military version is played by a single bugle or trumpet, along with other versions of the tune may be played in other contexts. The U.S. Marines has a ceremonial music site, good to know. It's also performed at Girl Guide, Girl Scout, and Boy Scout meetings and camps. The tune is also sometimes known as Butterfly's Lullaby, or by the first line of the lyric, Day is Done. The duration may vary to some extent. The Day is Done is the tap music that played at the beginning of the show. So the music the tune is a variation of an earlier bugle call known as the Scott Tattoo which was used in the USA from 1835 until 1860 and was arranged in its present form by the Union Army Brigadier General Daniel Butterfield that's where you get that name Butterfield from an American Civil War G- general also known as a liar <laughs> and Medal of Honor recipient, also got an award for being a liar, who commanded the 3rd Brigade, of course, of the 1st Division of the V-Army Corps of the Army of the Potomac while at Harrison's Landing, Virginia. Hello, Virginia. In July 1862, to replace a version a previous French bugle call used to signal lights out, get rid of that French music, put in that, Butterfield bugler. Butterfield's bugler Oliver Wilcox Norton of East Springfield, Pennsylvania, of course German country, right, was the first to sound the new call do 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 do, do, do. within moments. taps was used by both Union and Confederate forces. It was officially recognized by the US Army in 1874. TAPS concludes many military funerals conducted with honors at Arlington National Cemetery and elsewhere in the United States of America. The tune is also sounded at many memorial services at Arlington's Memorial Amphitheater and at grave sites throughout the cemetery. It is also regularly played at the American Cemetery in Normandy, France to commemorate the sacrifice made at and around that site by United States servicemen in World War II. Normandy, also known as D-Day. Love those two Ds, right? Death, death, death. D-Day, get those kids up on that shore. Anyways, it was during the Allied effort to liberate Europe from the Nazis. Yeah, 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 the Ashkenazis is who they're liberating themselves from. We need to liberate ourselves from the Nazis if you think about it, right? Okay, It became a standard component to U.S. military funerals in 1891. Okay. Why am I talking about taps music, bugles, military? Well, because. Because I am. (laughs) I was thinking a lot about sacrifice. There's something about war and blood sacrifices. People thank soldiers for their sacrifice to this country. What does that mean? Interesting piece around the 1900s because come to find out their awareness around that time was there. Just like a deal with the butterflies, right? Around the early 1900s and the deal with our brains not being linear. They wanted to have some awareness around the 1900s. Kennedy talked about what more you can do for your country. Do you realize that volunteers in this country... Um, save these losers over $86 billion by their volunteer efforts. Yeah. So, and then what really got me wondering was this, this little piece. This was written by a uh, woman who's now in Switzerland. Well, she's a man, but wearing a wig. <laughs> and she wrote actually quite a brilliant piece. Um, I'll be getting to my views on are all transgender people psychopaths? And the answer is no, not Not likely, but anyway, so she wrote a brilliant piece, but now she's on to gender studies. So I did look her up, a man in a wig. And, of course, everybody's talking about gender studies, right? What happened to men and women? But let me not get off on too many tangents here. But one one thing I will point out, the U.S. military is run by transgenders. Okay, let that sink into your head. Transgenders run the U.S. military. That General Millie guy is an ugly woman in a bad toupee, okay? Millie. That used to be a woman's name, Millie. Millie's my age. Millie is a stone-cold, killer, psychopath woman, okay? Pumped up on testosterone. General Millie looks exactly like, or a lot like, um, Curtis LeMay, the famous psychopath from this country, Yeah, um, I obviously haven't had the time to look at military leaders in every single country. But I have, of course, looked at military leaders in this evil empire. And I will tell you directly that they are all transgendered. All of them. And I suspect it is the exact same deal in every single country. But I have not looked at every single country because I don't have that much time. But yeah, it's all run by then. A bunch of women running the world, disguised as men, pumped up on testosterone. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Rage issues, testosterone. Oh, boy. Let me get back here. This one word sent me flying down this rabbit hole I'm flying around now. Civil religion. What is that? I said to myself. It's also referred to as civic religion. It was a coin uh, coin. <laughs> it was a term coined in the nineteen sixties. See we keep going the nineteen early nineteen hundreds, then they click into action in the sixties, and then here we are today. This guy, Robert Bella, B E L L A H, in nineteen sixty, he was a sociologist and he coined the phrase civil religion. It originated in French political thought and became a topic for U.S. sociologists since it's used by Robert Bellah in 1960. Civil religion is the implicit religious values of a nation as expressed through public rituals. Symbols such as the national flag and ceremonies on sacred days and at sacred places, such as monuments, battlefields, or national cemeteries. It is distinct from churches, although church officials and ceremonies are sometimes incorporated into the practice of civil religion. Countries described as having a civil religion include France, South Korea, the former Soviet Union, and the United States of America. Now, do other countries have civil religions beyond us? I do not know. I don't even think that I know. If you want to know, do you have a civil religion? Take what I'm saying today and use those eyes and look around your own country. Yeah, it's interesting, this intersection between church and state. That's what they say they don't do here, right? So, let me see here. How did we get a civil religion? Well, let me tell you here. The shift is generally dated. I'm reading from her work right now, okay. The shift is generally dated to around 1861, which is to say the beginning of the Civil War and helped Americans conceptualize the entity or cause they were fighting for. On the Union side, that is. Another example of how the Civil War helped create a sense of common national identity is a way in which it occasioned the founding of a national military cemetery system. Out of the Civil War, we came up with a cemetery system, okay? Okay. Up until the Civil War, the bodies of slain American soldiers had not been retrieved systematically from battlefields, nor been the objects of special reverence. It was in 1862 that for the first time, the U.S. government decided to set aside by act of Congress Special cemeteries to bury the bodies of those who gave their lives in defense of the republic, and an entire network of sacred national sites were thereby created. The single most famous formation of the way in which the war is linked to a discourse of national review renewal is abraham lincoln's address as a dedication at one of the first of these national military cemeteries the soldiers national cemetery at gettysburg pennsylvania in 19, 1863 exactly midway through the civil war lincoln gave his famous gettysburg address it is a powerful mixture of political and religious rhetoric that should serve as a point of departure for any analysis of the notion of American civil religion. It remains a compelling framework through which to understand the emotional and quasi-mystical dimensions of American politics. Civil religion has been defined in a variety of ways, but it is used to refer in a way in which national institutions, rituals, and ideologies function like a religion, dividing the world into sacred and profane spheres, providing constituents with a sense of supra-individual transcendence and collective continuity, and offering an emotionally satisfying frame for coping with death. If national civil religious resembles traditional religions in these three aspects, The modern nation has wrested from religion a fourth aspect that now monopolizes completely. The power to kill non-members for the sake of the self-preservation and to ask members to die in its name. Currently, the nation state legitimately holds this right. It holds that right to get people to die in their name which is why the nation can be said to have replaced religion in the social organization of death. Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg offers a revealing blueprint of how religious notions structure American political ideology. The word dedicated is used seven times in this speech of 267 words. The first use is completely neutral. In the sense of committed to or defined by. fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. However, in the next lines, Lincoln begins to rework the meaning of this word, pushing it steadily into a religious frame. For example... The third appearance of the term is synonymous with consecrate. Consecrate, remember that word, kids? Or set aside as sacred without, without actually saying so explicitly. He said, we have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. To speak of dedicating a piece of land for burial purposes, which not in itself is overly religious, shifts the register of the term in a more religious direction by referring to an activity, that of burial, which has traditionally been a function performed by the church and not the state. Building upon this sense of the word, Lincoln repeats it once more in the next line this time as an exact sentiment of consecrate, and reinforces this meaning by the even more explicitly religious verb to hallow. In other words, dedication has at least two different meanings of the Gettysburg Address, that of committing oneself to a course of action or program and a setting aside for religious or special purposes. When Lincoln says in the third paragraph that we cannot dedicate this ground, he performs a subtle but significant confusion between the two senses. By arguing that the battle itself has consecrated the land, Lincoln shifts from the neutral to the religious sense of the word and moreover implies that the battle itself is somehow sacred. Sociologically, in the light of Durkheim's theory, this was another researcher, which locates the sacred in the experience of the collective. So this person, Durkheim, said that the sacred is in the experience of the collective. This makes sense. The battle is sacred because it is about the fate of a nation. The concepts involved here, dedication, consecration, and devotion are used in ways that need to be understood not only for their rhetorical value, but for their ritual and performative function in the context of the original event at which they uttered this dedication of one of the very first war cemeteries. Lincoln was not only dedicating this one cemetery, he was defining the meaning and purpose of the war cemetery as a national institution. In doing so, he articulated one of the most enigmatic paradoxes of national identity, namely, that it is strengthened by the lives that are lost in its name. National identity is strengthened by the lost of lives that are lost in its name. The devotion inspired by the survivors by the sacrifice of the deed produces a new birth of freedom a phrase that refigures the deaths of soldiers into an image of birth linked to national identity through the word freedom, a term which vaguely but unmistakably signifies America. In other words, death, figured and understood as willing sacrifice, invests the nation with a sense of purpose, collective feeling, and renewed unity. Although Lincoln's speech invokes this transformative magic by which death becomes a new birth, it does not explain how it works. After all, the many deaths at Gettysburg could seem to delete the cohesion of the Union and be figured as a tragedy to be regretted rather than an occasion for regeneration. The logic by which death re-energizes national solidarity and cohesion can best be understood through the disciplines of sociology and anthropology and will be examined in a moment. Since the Civil War, only World War II has come close to playing a comparable role in renewing a sense of sacrifice, feeling, and a common purpose. Let me repeat that only World War II has come close to playing a comparable role of renewing a sense of sacred feeling and common purpose. In both cases, referring to a sense of collective unity that is articulated most clearly after the fact in the national narrative and memory that finally takes stock of the event. And do not wish to eclipse the complexity of the cultural forces that were in play during the actual events. It really helps smooth over the actual events, doesn't it? Put them in a nice little tidy cemetery. And then we can act like they didn't really die, they were heroes. Nevertheless, World War II has been dubbed the Good War in common parlance because of its seeming moral clarity. The dropping of the atomic bomb, well, and the firebombing of German cities may have tainted the moral high ground claimed by the Allies for some observers. But the Second World War has nevertheless entered American national memory as the most important episode of collective effort and public solidarity in the 20th century. Even if the glow of World War II as a collective experience faded in the decades that followed and was overshadowed by the divisive war in Vietnam and other crises of political authority, it can be said that World War II still remains, for the time being, the most effective functional paradigm for interpreting large-scale death in a national narrative. This became especially clear during the September 11 attacks in New York. She goes on to say, Although the initial comparison that many commentators made was with Pearl Harbor, the image that dominated the media in the weeks after the attacks, which has since been immortalized on a postage stamp, what they showed was a Thomas Franklin did a photo of a firefighter raising a flag. That firefighter, after 9-11, raising that flag, drew a comparison with a very different World War II event, the planting of the flag on Iwo Jima. And the, If the comparison with Pearl Harbor needs no explanation, although it certainly requires qualification, the, ma- the logic of mapping this famous photograph onto the rubble of the Twin Towers deserves careful unpacking. Why should the image of territory marking in the Pacific be a framework for mediating and understanding the attack on New York? Which is a very good point here because Pearl Harbor was, obviously it's all contrived, right? But Pearl Harbor was not the same as World War, Pearl Harbor was not the same as 9-11. But by photos and visualizations, they intersected those two things. It would suggest, I'm continuing on with her, it would suggest that two Iwo Jimas was involved in the wake of 9-11 for another reason. It's depiction of American sacrifice as a ritual of national regeneration. Although the photo is generally understood to signify victory, that's the guy putting the flag up on 9-11, it is also understood to evoke the high cost of that victory. The fact that two Iwo Jima was among the bloodiest landings in the Pacific campaign is linked to the cultural status of the photos. So Iwo Jima is the bloodiest landing of the Pacific tied to the photos of the 9-11. Clint Eastwood's 2006 film Flags of Our Fathers Reminded us three of the six soldiers in the Rosenthal photo died in the days following the picture-taking However, instead of depicting corpses or wounded men as many war photos do the photo depicts the most vivid possible terms The loyalty of American troops to the American flag and therefore to America The photo depicts this regardless of the question of whether these soldiers actually felt such patriotism or had simply been ordered to raise the flag. we I don't know if they still do, but we used to have to salute the flag every morning in school in this country. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America for which it stands, one nation, I I can't remember it all. (laughs) Well, anyway, you can look it up. Look up the um, flag the kids said. Yeah, indoctrination is the name of the game. But isn't it funny? People here don't want to see themselves as indoctrinated. (laughs) They want to point the fingers at China and Russia. And it's just really funny how it works, right? What you see out there in others is what we might consider looking at amongst ourselves, right? It's easy to point fingers out. That's why they say those who can't create like to criticize. So... Let me get back here. I wandered completely off here. Um, so, yeah, they, they framed those two pictures to make us think they were the two same things, which is an excellent point here, okay? Yes, since most of the two two thousand 2,976 people who died in those two buildings were not willing sacrifices, unlike soldiers in battle, they did not fit in this narrative. So, they seem to... She goes on to say, Marvin and Engels' insistence that group members must seem willing to die for the group in order for their deaths to successively generate group cohesion can help explain the way firefighters and other uniformed public servants became the most obsessive focus of the national media in the weeks following the attacks. Go look at my show that I did on YouTube about 9-11, that fireman Bob, Bob the fireman. That was the guy that Bush was draped all over, hanging his arm around, that fireman Bob. Crazy story. So, people became, this is my narrative, after 9-11, people became obsessed with firemen, okay? And, um, well, I'm not going to get into the whole fireman deal. I'll continue on. It is particularly striking how much emphasis was placed on the volunteer aspect of their commitment to do their work. Pay attention to that, right? The fir- the thirst for narrat- narratives of self sacrifice was strong, was so strong that one woman, Tanya Head, became nationally famous for her fraudulent account of being saved by a man who then went back into one of the towers and died. The revealing thing about this hoax is that the perpetrator did not invent a story. This is this um, Tanya Headperson. She did not invent a story of her own miraculous escape or heroism, but a story of someone else's heroic death. She intuitively sensed that self sacrifice gestures far more emotional and symbolic than survival. So she figured out, or the press or the CIA figured out, (laughs) a sense of somebody else sacrificing themselves made for a better story. If the immediate reaction of the media was to read the 9-11 attacks in terms of World War II frames of reference, President Barack Obama gestured rhetorically back to Gettysburg in a speech commemorating the attacks in 2009. Obama, calling on the American public to make September 11 serve as an occasion for national renewal, Obama said, on a day when others sought to sap our confidence Let us renew our common purpose. Let us remember how we came together as one nation, as one people, as Americans united. Obama invokes the ideals of coming together, a common purpose, one nation, one people. Speaking of the death of nearly, of course, 3,000 Americans as an occasion for unity, Obama invokes a familiar rhetoric of national renewal based on mass death. Mass death provokes national renewal. Interesting, huh? In order better to understand how compelling sense of national unity and renewal can be generated by a massacre like September 11th, we need to look into sociology and specifically the concept of civil religion, which is concerned with the religious or emotional aspects of nationism. People here have a strong sense of nationism. If I were right now to walk into a crowded building and say that I thought that JFK was a liar or really a woman or something like that, and actually be telling the truth, I would be taken to the ground. I would be told to go find another country to live in. People here have nationism. How else do you think they got people to pay over 50, 60 percent of their hard-earned money to fund all this nationism so and this is where it brings in this Durkin person that I mentioned earlier the social theorist whose work has been most pertinent to this issue is Emily Durkheim important person to look up if you're curious especially oh it's Emil (laughs) I said Emily, probably is Emily E-M-I-L-E especially in his late work, Elementary Forms of Religious Life, published in 1915. Same thing with the butterflies, we're back in the 1900s. Durkheim's most influential idea of this study is that social belongings is essentially the root of religion. Since religious feelings, i.e. awe, submission to a greater power, and a sense of the sacred and profane, Originate in the admiration and fear that the individual feels before the power of the collectivity. The collectivity has the power to protect or to harm the individual. Hold on one second. I got a cat that wants out of the room. (laughs) This is kind of a hot mess recording. Okay. No one's ever happy in the room I put them in. Does that sound familiar? Okay, hey, come on, you lousy cat. Get out of here. Out, 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 out. Get out. Out. Stop it. Get out. Get out of here. Get out. I don't really do research. I run a zoo around here. Okay, let me see here. Okay. uh, In a perfect world, I would tell the kid from Bangladesh to knock out the dead day, but this is not a perfect world here. <laughs> now, let me get settled back in here. Okay, now. Yeah. Find the page where I was on. Cats out. Dogs in. Ready to go here. Okay. I don't think these cats and dogs around here, I don't think they understand it. We're trying to sort out the world's problems here. And bugging me to get up and let them in and out only interrupts my train of thought here. But let me see here. Oh, yeah. I was back at the death. Okay. So, um, So they were focusing on... The volunteer aspect, right? Remember uh, Jimmy Carter, Kennedy, volunteer, volunteer. I wonder how much the Carters and Kennedys have made off of volunteers with all that habitat for humanity. Huh. Okay. The revealing thing about this hoax, I'm back talking about this woman, is that she didn't escape it herself. So, okay. Franklin's photo of firefighters raising a flag drew comparisons with a very different World War effect. That is how they also trick us. I did a show quite a long time ago about how the photos don't always coincide with the image that we're looking at. They sometimes put images in that don't correlate to the description to kind of subtly trick our eyes. But anyways... um, So this answer is not entirely satisfying, since the devastated landscape on Iwo Jima is foreign land, and the flag raisers are the authors rather than the victims of an attack. In other words, the rubble is not theirs to rise from. We're talking about the rubble of 9-11 and that flag, very different from Iwo Jima. It would suggest that Iwo Jima was involved in the wake of 9-11 for another reason— its depiction of American sacrifice as a religion, a ritual of national regeneration. So, um, I don't know. I don't know. Instead of depicting corpses or wounded men, as many war photos do, in terms of loyalty, the American troops to the American flag and therefore to America. There's a lot wrapped up into all this symbolism here, right? I mean, we did stand and put our hands over our hearts and pledge allegiance to the flag, which I'm guessing we're really pledging allegiance to Satan. (laughs) Just, just guessing here, right? Okay. The devotion inspired by the survivors, in the survivors, by the sacrifice of the dead, produces a new birth of freedom a phrase that refigures the death of the soldier into an image of birth linked to national identity through the word freedom. So, um, I think that um, dubbing World War II the Good War was probably a psychological maneuver because it made us think of death as a, uh, not death, but murder. Murder as a good thing. Um he said that um they dedicated, desecration, dedicated, um all this consecrated stuff. Okay. He was defining this. Now, if national civil religion resembles traditional religions in these three aspects, okay, but the aspect that I'm the most curious about is this part about getting people to die for the cause. You have to come up with a pretty good cause to get people to willing to go out and die for it, right? So um, and they always what they do through these presidential speeches is they completely keep bringing us back to these times, right? So there's a thing here that is very interesting that has to do with the totems, okay? That which is set aside as sacred is invested with the meaning and the power, which is basically that of the group. So it is all of us deciding collectively that something is sacred, okay? And she went on to say, In the aboriginal tribes that Durkheim used as a basis of his theory, the sacred takes the form of a totem. We've all heard of totem poles, T-O-T-E-M. Durkheim further argues that the religious practices of average tribes were able to reveal the universal traits of all religions and all societies. Their primitivism does not make them qualitatively different from the monos of used more advanced societies, but rather gives them the status of basic common denomination or structural skeleton of all religions. Interestingly, when Durkheim casts about for a modern equivalent to the totem, he does not cite the Christian cross, but the national flag. National flag. Flags are modern totems, insofar as they are the emblems that represent the most widely respected collective units not tribes in our case but national states in Durkheim sociology then the modern equivalents of totem and tribes are flag and country this insight intersects with some of the work done in the field of civil religion However, much of the work on American civil religion in the 1970s that followed Ballum's attempt has been con- misconceived. Um, while scholars debated the interpretation of religious and politics in President's speeches and the supposed sanctity of the Constitution in American politics, the totemic theme status of the flag as an embodied symbol of American sovereignty, was largely overlooked. In other words, historians focus on text, myths, and rhetoric, but ignored the quasi-religious rites and sacred ob- objects that could define American civil religion. Yet when we think of the omnipresent of the American flag at official ceremonies, Government offices, public buildings, schools, and sporting events, as well as elaborate rules that government's fabrication, handling, and disposal. It is impossible to deny that there is an element of the sacred attached to this object. A lot of controversy here about burning flags, right? More striking still is the way in which bodies of dead soldiers are ritualistically covered by flags and how flags are given to families in lieu of the body of the slain soldier. So, there is a physical continuity between the flag body and the soldier body. The Durkheim theory of the religious basis of society goes further towards explaining than any official account of why flags are given to soldiers' families. Finally, not only the intense emotions around flag burning and flag desecration, but the various Supreme Court decisions concerning the treatment of the flag suggest that it is not explicitly treated as a religious object, only because its status is regarded tactically as higher than any other religious symbol. But that's it again. This is the point missed by Robert Bell and other scholars. Civil religion does not function like other existing religions because it transcends them in relation to the collectivity as a whole. While many people have abandoned religious beliefs and practice, it is almost impossible to to have no nationality. Even people who have lost their civilization one way or another usually consider themselves as belonging to some nation in at least a spiritual or cultural sense. The main point here is that nationality is generally the first and most important way that society and social life on this planet is organized. Well, they organize as internationals, right? (laughs) I don't think we had borders and flags before. It commands the most primary emotions, and its leaders, representatives, institutions, and flags require the highest degree of respect. See how this happens? Get that flag? All those people that represent that flag, they must be saluted. Salute that flag. While the claim that the American flag as a kind of totem may still be accepted by most historians, Marvin and Engels' argument that the nation is regenerated most effectively by blood sacrifice is more problematic. This is where Renee Girard's work on the sacrifice comes in. She did a book, In Violence and the Sacred, 1972. Girard argues that societies are naturally rife with tensions and conflicts and that they can avoid internal violence only by directing this aggression toward a common object. This sacrificial scapegoat allows a group to maintain internal peace by being purged, or destroyed. Get everybody to gang up against somebody else is the basic theory that I'm reading here. Okay. Similarly, Anthony Marx, that's spelled M-A-R-X, argues in a recent study of national origins that nation states did not merely replace the church as is commonly accepted, but that they harnessed the exclusionary tactics and deep passions of religious identity into nationalistic politics. Linking Christian martyrology to modern nation formation, Marvin and Engel argue that national cohesion is always constituted on the basis of collective victimage or collective sacrifice. In other words, as nations tend to view their history. In terms of foundational moments of collectional sacrifice, such as wars, wars of liberation, or other moments of great loss of life, life, the intensity of their sense of, I'm trying not to flick my pages at your ears, <laughs> I'm learning, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, okay. The intensity of their sense of national unity and loyalty is based on a sense of ongoing identification with these foundational sacrifices. Here we return to Abraham Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg in his hope that the casualties buried in that new war cemetery would inspire the living to dedicate themselves to the cause of American nationhood. Although nationalistic rhetoric tends to rely heavily on the notion of sacrifice, and we are all familiar with such phrases in political speeches, the idea that nations might actually need members to be willing to die for them can appear prima facie as a revolting claim. For many modern subjects, the idea of a nation serves as a powerful ideal of community and social justice. Civic nationalism promises to transcend and reconcile ethnic, religion, and all other differences by congealing a disparate population into a kind of imagined family linked by citizenship and mutual solidarity. And it is in this utopian guise that the idea of a nation inspires powerful emotions in people across the political spectrum. They know some things about us, and they do know this part very well. She continues on. Modern political theory defines the role of the nation-state primarily as one of protection of nationals from nation- non-nationals and of citizens from each other. Therefore, nothing could be e- seemed more wrong than to propose that the nation might need members to die for it on a regular basis in order to sustain its sense of unity. It doesn't seem wrong to a lot of people, this is my words here, about people wanting to go off and murder other people in the case for unity. I think these same people probably wouldn't think about going next door and murdering their neighbor, but they would certainly consider that murdering their neighboring country That's a good idea. See how thoughts can start to splinter into our little brains here? Okay. So, the class of willing sacrifices that every viable nation possesses is its military, which is why soldiers are something like a priestly order, subject to strict selection, training, rules, and privileges. In the US, the mandatory soldier's or oath binds the pledge to protect the constitution and obey orders given by the president and its representatives. It reads, "I, Jane Doe, do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic." that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, over me, got it, according to regulation and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so please help me God. Okay. The mixture of national and religious rhetoric, words like true faith, so help me God, Appointed officers is striking for a nation which has made the separation of church and state a cornerstone of its national creed. But this is to miss the point that the state is itself a kind of church for all practical purposes. The other striking thing about the O is that it contains several important omissions. While explicitly naming the Constitution as the sacred text of the United States, it respects the taboo on naming the real sacred symbol, i.e., the flag. So it names the Constitution, not the flag. But the Constitution tells us to respect the flag, right? (sighs) Nevertheless, while many soldiers would lay down their life to keep an American flag safe, None would risk injury to protect a copy of the Constitution. The other important omission in the soldier's oath is a reference to killing or dying, which finally are the two basic tasks that the soldier is authorized to do and which sets him or her apart from ordinary citizens. Yeah, I didn't take an oath that I can go out and kill anybody, did I? Not that I remember These are all important implications are couched in the neutral pledge to obey the president and one's hierarchical superiors in the army who represent his sovereign authority. The direct and explicit relationship of each soldier to the highest sovereign power in the group articulated in the soldier's oath, binding each oath taker directly to the president, reveals something about why military service occupies such a charge and office coveted place in national experience military service confers on soldiers a privileged relationship to totemic power back to the totem poles right the power linked to sovereignty and to most sacred sites objects and moments in national life all about the rituals. All about it. This heightened relationship to national belongings is the reason why military service continues to be prized by young men seeking a rite of passage and a link to something greater than their individual lives. Ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. Get out there and volunteer or join the Peace Corps. It is also the reason why women have been fought to be accepted in the military and why African-Americans and other ethnic groups have eagerly served in every major war. Everybody wants to get included, right? Join social media. Become a negative influence. Be influenced. Be influenced. Follow people. Obey. 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 Military service bears a special relationship to citizenship and offers the promise of unsayable national credentials. Wear that uniform out in public and people will thank you for your sacrifice. And yet soldiers are often objects of intense popular ambivalence. The negative stereotypes of soldiers as unthinking Ottomans or lawless brutes are rooted in in a common perception that soldiers are qualitatively different from civilians. They are linked to death either by killing or by agreeing to be killed. The unquestioning willingness to die through appreciable and certain specific circumstances nevertheless creates suspicion that servicemen are uncritical, naive fools in the best of cases, brainwashed robots in the worst. These negative perceptions are even greater in the case of combat veterans who have killed as well as risked their lives. The fear and contempt aroused by Vietnam veterans in the 1970s, this was before their rehabilitation by official ceremonies and stuff in the 80s, revealed a discomfort that is latent in the civilian attitude toward veterans of any war. Yes, we're uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable about all this murder. (laughs) The official and public respect, according to military personnel, all the more ubiquitous and ostentatious since the beginning of the Iraq war, conceals the fact there is necessarily a tension between civilians focused on their pleasure and profit and the class of people designated for exposure to death and injury, supposedly to protect them. So... The suspicion and distrust is often mutual, with veterans voicing resentment about having been sent into danger by a population that doesn't seem to appreciate what soldiers have risked and lost. This mutual incomprehension came to a head during the Vietnam War, but is always present to some degree. Military service possesses a truly unusual status in relation to a nation-state. It is defined by a direct appropriation of the individual in the service of the group. In fact, the whole point is to de-individualize the individual and to make him as unlike a civilian as possible. Thus, military training is characterized by strict discipline and the foregoing of civilian freedoms. Well, well, well. Everything is about the process, right? The overt rationale for the strictness of military discipline is to make soldiers effective and to save lives. But the but an anthropological view would focus on the ritualistic aspect of practices that organize access to legalized murder and self-sacrifice. That says it all. This is legalized murder and self sacrifice. The image of the Vietnam soldier as insubordinate and generally lawless is often linked to the fact that America failed in Vietnam. In fact, cover your ears, Americans, cover your ears. All wars since World War II have been failures. All wars. As far as regenerating a collective sense of purpose and national cohesion is concerned, so-called successful ones, such as the Panama invasion, the Persian Gulf, and um, so the issue here is why some wars work as national rituals of renewal and some do not, is the subject of a chapter of Marvin Engel's book listing several conditions that need to be met. These conditions are rooted in the ritual aspect of the theory and need to be understood in anthropological rather than political terms. First of all, according to Marvin and Engel, the greater the number of deaths, the greater the effect of national coming together in patriotism. The two most successful wars in this regard in the history of the United States were the Civil War and World War II. In the first, nearly 1 in 10 able-bodied males were killed or injured. In the second, the percentage of deaths relative to the population was smaller, but 82% of American men between the age of 20 and 25 were drafted or enlisted and therefore at risk. Also, Remove their sexuality, right? Remove their sexuality. An important correlation of the first condition is that only member deaths count, not enemy deaths. This would explain why the effects of the first civil war with over 85, oh, excuse me, the first Gulf War. <laughs> I've got so many wars in my brain here. The first Gulf War with over 85,000 Iraqi deaths, but only 147 American casualties. See, we don't like to talk about how many of them that got murdered, right? The victims, and again, this refers generally to soldiers, must declare themselves willing to die for the cause, and the group must declare itself willing to sacrifice them. If the soldier's oath is the formal declaration of the soldier's willingness to have an official declaration of war is a standard way in which a nation indicates its willingness to bear the cost of war in soldiers' lives. The Vietnam War was a failure in all respects, as far as this condition is concerned, because, first of all, the U.S. government never formally declared war on Vietnam. And secondly, they don't declare war in a lot of places. Secondly, the U.S. soldiers were increasingly unwilling to die or even fight in the war as it lost popular support in later years the kid I went to high school with um, across the street he ended up in jail for burning his uh, uniform popular support is in fact another condition for a war to have lasting effects on national cohesion the most reliable producer of what Marvin Engel called anonymous victimage Widespread popular consent for member sacrifice is a credible enemy. World World War II was an ideal war because it offered enemies that were unambiguously worth killing and being killed by. The pretext for war must also be seen as coming from the outside. So as to better conceal the fact that the nation will benefit from its soldiers' deaths. The pretext for war must also be seen as coming from outside so as to better conceal the fact that the nation will benefit from its soldiers' deaths. Yes, I repeated that on purpose. Again, Pearl Harbor offered the U.S. an ideal war situation, and presidents have always made an effort to create the impression that American military involvement is a reaction to a belligerent attack rather than a preemptive move so furthermore there have been genuine uncertainty of the outcome and the greater the uncertainty the greater the ritual magic and enduring effects of the outcome the Revolutionary War and Civil War and World War II all share this feature there was no certainty from the start that the American rebels could succeed or that the Southern rebels wouldn't that makes sense, right? You don't start a war knowing how it's going to end, right? You figure you're going to win. Four, if there must be a genuine uncertainty of the outcome. And the greater the uncertainty, the greater the ritual magic. So, It's plausible that Normandy has had such an enduring power over the national image because its outcome was so unsure at the time. Normandy was a key time with D-Day, D-D-D-Death. So, um, James Bradley's account of the Battle of Two Iwo Jimas in Flags of Our Father's lay special stress on the way in which the unexpectedly high loss caused a sickening anxiety about the outcome of that operation it took 23 days to secure the island far more than anyone predicted and success was likely but far from guaranteed iwo jima was the only battle of the war where the losses of the victims uh, losses of the victors out numbered the losses of the defenders. The outcome must be definitive. Victory or loss must be clear and borders reconsecrated in order for time to begin again. The outcome itself is less important than its clarity. Even a loss can have a tremendously unifying effect on a group. One thinks of the Alamo or Weimar Germany. In contrast, An ambiguous outcome, such as that in Korea, cannot create a feeling of national unity. This theory can help explain the memory hole into which the Korean War disappeared in spite of its 36,000 dead and 102,000 Americans wounded. Finally, only another ritual can repair a failed ritual. It is interesting in this light to see how the first Gulf War was offered by President Bush Sr. as an attempt to repair the failed ritual of the Vietnam War and how the war in Iraq was understood widely to be Bush Jr.'s attempt to repair the ultimately failed ritual of the first Gulf War. (laughs) Since popular elections are also social rituals whose ritual is Agency can be compared to that of member sacrifice. It is important to see how Clinton's election in 1992 on his promise of a new covenant with America. America's elections in 2008 were understood by many Americans as rituals that could heal the divisions that had plagued America since the failure of the Vietnam War. Go look at the show I did about teams. Every, you know, they every team comes up with a new way to say the last team didn't work. And it's, well, it's crazy how long some of this stuff has worked on us. But, so, um, I don't know. Uh, this is an interesting thing about the firefighters and, um, uh, 9-11. Um, getting back to those two photos, um even the media's sanctification of the firefighters in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, which worked to initially position them like soldiers and therefore like national heroes in their sacrifice, eventually wore off as revelations of their sometimes less than heroic side of firefighters appeared in 2002. Well, yeah. Um, There was a book... Well, who, who are our national heroes now, doctors and nurses? <laughs> so there was a book that she quoted here, American Ground, Unbuilding the World Trade Center. It took away some of the sanity luster of his description of firefighters because in the book he described firefighters treating their own dead with elaborate flag-draped ceremonies while adopting a callous bag and tag attitude. Towards civilian death oh it was the class sister right as a result tensions rose in the weeks after the attacks because of firefighters and the civilian construction workers who felt that the civilian dead were being forgotten in the media hype about firefighters <laughs> wonder why that was okay. Perhaps the biggest reason for the lack of enduring solidarity as an effect of the September 11 attacks is the way the emotions of that day were channeled by the Bush administration into a strategy of revenge that turned out to be an unrelated country and to have unambiguous results. The revenge became the Muslims, right? She went on to say, Iraq is no longer ruled by an unstable dictator, but the war has brought no tangible benefits to the United States, except for private corporations and the war. The war in Iraq has left America heavily in debt and more polarized than ever. <laughs> Precisely because most wars America has waged have failed. America is a failure. <laughs> Most wars America have waged have failed. So utterly, at producing any kind of nationality solidarity, something that needs to be examined in this discussion of ritual conditions and ritual agency is the question of what level this logic operates on. You lose all these wars and everybody still thinks war is okay. Clearly, it is not the level of individual actors since no American officially would ever think of himself as sending American soldiers to die in order to strengthen national cohesion. Even less in this, the logic of official state discourse or reasoning. In fact, the ignorance of individuals and states of the advantages of war sacrifice as ritualized social glue is obvious from how often wars are conducted ineptly. From a ritual point of view, robbing them of any efficiency whatsoever. Yeah, if the whole point of war is to win, (laughs) they've got a losing strategy, right? In any case, as Gerard insists and Marvin and Engel concur, the real motives for the group member sacrifice must be unknown for the participants of the ritual. A war must be seen to be provoked by an external enemy and not sought out by the group. The sacrifice will not work to generate group generate feeling and solidarity. If there is any hint of recognition that the group desire the sacrifice in any way, people have to not know what they're doing, right? Get them to agree without knowing the details. This split between the explicitly articulated and the tactical Tactic ritual meaning or sacrificial violence is a reason why analysis of political speeches, documents, and memos may not explain everything about a nation's behavior. By definition, the collective will and agency operates on a level that is not conscious or available to individuals. It is a level that is necessarily supra. Individual, even though individuals will have their own sense of why they are doing something like enlisting in the military or visiting a national memorial. At the same time, the collective meaning, agency, and effects of such actions and institutions will exist on a different plan of social reality than the meaning and effects of individuals' actions on how they perceive them. I think what they're saying here is that we see these things as things we celebrate and institutionalize, but we're not. We're compartmentalizing the murder and the war that took place behind them. It is often said that wars are launched as a meaning of generating unity and distracting a civil civilian population from domestic discord. This is a cynical, commonplace, That was made about Clinton's bombing of Serbia and Kosovo, as well as Bush Sr.'s decision to attack Iraq. Like many clichés, it may be partially true. And some wars do indeed create powerful feelings of national solidarity, spawning institutions and commemorative practices, and give the country momentum for a while. Yet Marvin and Engels' theory of blood sacrifice and civil religion suggests that this solidarity comes from not facing or defeating a common enemy, real or invented, but from the deaths of members, soldiers willing to die in the name of the nation. In other words, the only kind of war that could possibly create near, create national renewal is one that is so cataclysmic that it costs not thousands but hundreds of thousands of lives. During the past 200 years, no country has sent military forces into battle more often than the United States. With that, I will close. Be safe out there. Goodbye for now. I'll be picking up this research soon. Kind of a crazy spin on things, right? War, rituals, sacrifice. Well, I didn't write it. They did, right? Chat with you later. Goodbye for now. Presenting the colors this evening is a joint service color guard from the Military District of Washington. They carry our nation's flag and are flagged by the colors of each of the five military services as well as drummers from the United States Army Band Pershing's Own. To honor America and perform our national anthem please welcome Academy Award nominee and six-time Grammy winner Lady Gaga oh, say can